This is the Education Gadfly Show. You've deserved to be on the show for so long, and finally you get your chance. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me welcoming my co-host, the Leonardo DiCaprio of Education Reform, New Classrooms founder and CEO, Joel Rose. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Joel, you told me earlier that, what what about being on this show? Huh? It was on the bucket list, Mike. It was it, on the bucket list. The Education Gadfly Show is on his bucket list. I love it, Joel. I love it. Uh, it's so great to have you here. Great to be here. You know, Joel, for those of you uh, who don't recognize new classrooms, this was once upon a time, started out as School of One inside the New York City uh, public schools, and uh, then uh, was spun off and is now new classrooms. Joel, start by telling us this. Tell us a little bit of what new classrooms is. I, I thought you were still just focused in New York City. Turns out you're all over the country. At new Classrooms is a nonprofit organization that designs new school-based learning models. Uh, we've designed a model called Teach to one math that's now in place in 28 schools around the country. And the way it works is when students have math, they look up and they see these big TV monitors and they see their name and they see which station they're supposed to go to. Experience two sessions and a particular skill or concept. Then they take a daily exit ticket and we use that data to create a new schedule for them the next day based on how they did the previous day. I like it's an exit ticket, not a test. Very smart. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very. So Joel, you, you when, when people uh, that are opposed to education reform think about you know evil privatizers, are they thinking about you? Is that basically what you are? I certainly hope not. Uh, you know, what, what we're doing is actually just taking out the textbooks and putting in All something right. much more robust. But yeah. we work with the districts that are on the district payroll. Um, nonprofit, for profit. We're a nonprofit. Nonprofit. There you go. So, uh, although, you know, so, sometimes you say, well, you're nonprofit. You still could be making a lot of money. We'll talk about that uh, in light of uh, some of the controversies around Success Academies and other things. So, Joel, lots to talk about today. Clara, let's play Pardon the Gadfly. Joel, at New Classrooms, you take the idea of differentiation seriously. Those of us at Fordham have been skeptical about the notion, arguing that it's crazy to expect one teacher to be able to reach 25 kids at vastly different achievement levels all at the same time. What have you learned about making differentiation work? Joel, can you tell that I wrote that question? I can. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, this is what you hear, right? That that the people, especially people who are arguing against any kind of tracking or ability grouping, and they say, no, 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 we need to have these heterogeneous classes classrooms, anything else, it's racist and classist and it's going to hurt the lowest performing kids. Uh, and, and then you say, well, how are, so how are you going to make sure all these kids are actually learning something every day? And they say, well, the teacher just has to learn how to differentiate. Uh, you actually have a model of differentiating. Uh, so tell us more. How, how does the model work? And uh, do you think it's, is this the only way to differentiate? Well, I should say, Mike, I'm a former teacher and I agree with your skepticism. I had a very hard time differentiating. When I, when I taught fifth grade, I had kids in my class on a second grade level mm-hmm. and kids in my class on eighth grade level. And I was told, here's the fifth grade curriculum. Good luck. Yeah. So it's clear that uh, differentiation can make a big difference. It's just very hard to operationalize within the structure of one teacher and 30 kids in 800 square foot room. Yeah. Uh, but if you design a completely different model, say you have a model like we've designed where there are 100 kids and four or five adults in different learning stations and you use technology to help to organize the differentiation so it's not all on the backs of teachers, then differentiation becomes a lot more possible. The key to this is schedules. And today we create 10,000 schedules every day Mm -hmm. figuring out what kids should learn, where they should learn, how they should learn, and how it should be staffed. 
Now, is this just a fancy way of basically doing ability grouping? I mean, when when are the kids spending all this time learning math around other kids at their achievement level? No, actually, a core part of the model is continually grouping and regrouping students who share a common need. So if you look across 100 students, you might have nine students who need area of a triangle today and 17 more who need it next Thursday. And because each student is on their own individual path, mm -hmm. they're continually grouped with students who have that common need at that point in time. Right. So, I mean, this is the, the interesting way to get out of this box that we've put ourselves in, that the sort of uh, notion, again, that ability grouping is, is somehow wrong or that it's uh, anti-equity is you say, well, uh, if you have an ability group of one, right, uh, then then you get out from underneath that conundrum. Exactly. And, That's and, the point. And, and, and you're telling me that for real, though, uh, you know, if you went and you followed Johnny uh, for a couple of weeks, that you would see Johnny sitting next to lots of different kids, not just the same kids every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. Topic number two. The Every Student Succeeds Act opens the door to new measures of school quality and student success, and many educators are interested in looking at so-called non-cognitive skills like grit. The New York Times quoted grit expert Angela Duckworth this week, saying that's a terrible idea. What do you think? And how do you think about non-cognitive skills at new classrooms? I mean, don't you love it? You know, she's she's Miss Grit, right? She has put this on the map and she's saying, for the love of God, don't try to measure this stuff or attach stakes to it. Uh, you know, because, again, we're still figuring out how to measure it. And if you attach stakes to it, you're going to ruin the whole thing. Uh, now, you guys are focused on math uh, in math. Is it math alone? Do you think about these kinds of non-cognitive skills? A ton. A ton, yeah. Uh, we have a, a student success framework that articulates both the mathematical skills and concepts we want to develop, as well as the non-academic components. Yeah. We want kids to learn how to persevere. We want to learn teach kids how to teach themselves. Mm -hmm. We want kids to work collaboratively. Those are very much part of ensuring that kids feel ownership over their own learning, because if they feel ownership, they'll be more successful in the classroom. So we take that part very and, seriously. And yet, you know, there's, there's this rap on the technology stuff that says, oh, well, okay, maybe you can teach these discrete skills, but you can't teach character you know you can't teach non-cognitive you can't really uh, do this stuff via a computer so what how do you i mean when you think about that stuff are they learning it when they are with a real live human being is that when you're doing the non-cognitive stuff or is uh, are there computer programs that are helping them with this too so when kids are experiencing mathematics, they're learning part of their time with the computer, part of the time with the teacher, part of their time collaboratively with each other. Mm -hmm. What we're really using technology for is to organize it, to figure out what is the right lesson in the right way for each student each day. They may not be by themselves. So having a collaborative modality, for example, ensures that kids are learning how to collaborate with each other. Having independent modalities ensures that kids are learning how to teach themselves. Right. And how much, I mean, again, going back to my, my mythical student, Johnny, uh, does anybody name their kid Johnny anymore? Probably, probably not so much. Uh, I mean, how much of their day is likely spent doing math on a computer versus another modality? It, it really varies by kid. Because we get data every day on how kids are performing, we can understand which combinations of modalities work best for each student, and yeah. we can use that information to drive their future schedules. Very good. Topic number three. Oh, but by the way, I never I never explain why you're the Leonardo DiCaprio of, of education reform. I mean, I just feel like it's like, you know, you've deserved to be on the show for so long, and finally you get your chance. I thought about saying you were the Chris Rock of education reform, but that just seemed inappropriate, you know, to, I mean, after all the controversy of, of, you know, no people of color being nominated to have somebody who's not a person of color to be the Chris Rock. Anyway, you see where I'm going with this. I'm glad it wasn't because I was on the Titanic. Yes. Oh, <laughs> there it is. Yes. Uh, but you, I see. But see, you're funny. You're funny like Chris Rock, Joel. <laughs> all right. Topic number three. 
You live and work in New York City. We've been watching the Eva Moskowitz versus Bill de Blasio fight from afar. What do you see as the future of Success Academies? So, Joel, I know everybody's nervous about talking about Eva sometimes, and I don't want to get you in trouble here, but I just was curious. I mean, this gets played up. We see, seems like Eva Moskowitz, Success Academies, they're in the New York Times three times a week, it seems like. Uh, is all of New York obsessed with this fight, or is this just being uh, kind of blown up uh, by the press as a big story. What, what, what's going on here? What's happening? You know, I, I don't know that all of New York is obsessed with this fight um, or what will happen with success. But what I do know is that we do have to figure out a way to move past this charter versus district paradigm. Uh, you know, charters were orig- originally designed to sort of bring innovation into, uh, into schools. And to some degree they have, but in many ways, individual charter schools have a hard time finding the capacity and oxygen to innovate against the school model. We're convinced that through real thoughtful design and innovation, we can help to bridge the gap. And we work with charter schools and we work with district schools today, including two of Bill de Blasio schools mm-hmm. uh, in New York City. Um, and we're, we're confident that, um, that that innovation is really very much the way forward. All right, let me ask this a different way. I mean, it does seem like Eva is under attack from a lot of corners. I mean, is Success Academy at, at risk? Uh, or, you know, five years from now, we're still going to see them out there. We're going to see them growing. What's, what, what would you predict? I, I really, I don't know. I mean, I know that they have a lot of support. I know they have some terrific results. Um, I know that Eva is a very strong leader, um, uh, but I, I just don't know where it's going to end up. All right. I'll try again <laughs> next time, Joel. That's too bad. It is interesting what you say about innovating against the school model. I mean, what do you think from your perspective? Uh, do you think your model will be different five years from now than it is today? And how, how will you make sure that it is? A- absolutely. Um, every day we, we get data back. We learn from kids. We explore different components to it. We try these features, that features. Yeah. Um, new ways of exploring what might work. So it's changed a lot, even from when we we used to do School of One. Today, Teach to One, the new model, is very different than what School of One was. So trying to innovate on the model is sort of very much at the core of of what we think education needs. If you think about all the different sectors that have innovated over the last 150 years in transportation, Mm -hmm. in healthcare, um, there has been so little investment in R&D around education. And whatever's there is mostly R, not a whole lot of D. Uh, We need more design. We need more innovation in K-12 if we're ever going to turn the page on the factory model classroom. All right, Joel Rose from New Classrooms. Thanks for joining us. That's all the time we've got for Pardon the Gadfly. Now it is time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. And pinch hitting for Mike, it's me, David Griffith. I'm here with uh, Amber, uh, who's going to present uh, on a study about, uh, is it evaluating teachers? It is. So this week I have a new working paper out by Matthew Kraft, who's one of our EAPs. Uh, People don't know what EAPs are, but anyway, they're one of our rock star education policy scholars. Uh, And Allison Gilmore called Revisiting the Widget Effect which examines teacher evaluation reform. So I think most of our folks know that the widget effect was the widely popular TNTP report that found that most districts just don't rate too many teachers unsatisfactory. You remember this one, David? Uh, I do. <laughs> yeah. It got a ton of press. Um, so anyway, Matthew comes back and says, okay, let's see if it's gotten any better. So he and his colleagues look at the distribution of teacher effectiveness in 19 states, including 14 of which were raced to the top winners and conducted a case study, which I 
I thought was the most interesting part. In a large urban district in the Northeast, mm, wonder what that is, that adopted new evaluations in 2012-2013. The case study included surveys of evaluators who were responsible for evaluating the teachers and interviewed principals. All right, key finding. Among the 19 states, the analysts found that the median percentage of teachers rated below proficient is, what do you think? I don't know. Five uh, percent? Oh, two point seven percent. Wow. So it inched up from the one percent that TNTP found. Yet, not surprising, the percentages rated below proficient varied across states, as did the percentages rated above proficient. So a couple little factoids. Hawaii had fewer than 1% of teachers judged below proficient. New Mexico had 26% of teachers in that bucket. Hmm. I don't know. It's a head scratcher, right? As for those rated above proficient, Georgia rated 3% of teachers here, compared to 73% in Tennessee. Wow, they must have great teachers in Tennessee. <laughs> That's got to be it, right? Uh, Massachusetts, our highest performing state, placed 8% of teachers as above proficient. So pretty conservative. Hmm. Uh, analysts also found that more rating categories does not appear to translate into greater differentiation at the lower end of the rating scale, just at the top end. So you're either effective or you're highly effective, um, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. As for the case study, and again, this is really a really cool part of the study. Uh, the survey showed that evaluators estimated that 27.8% of all teachers in their school would perform at a level below proficient. So they asked them, okay, ahead of time, like, how many do you think? And they said about 28%. Yet, their estimate was four times the percentage of teachers actually rated below proficient, which was fewer than 7%. So in other words, they asked them how many you think, they said 28, and then these same evaluators end up actually rating only 7% that way, okay? So let me just clarify there. Yeah. Is it actually attributable to the evaluations themselves or it's it's not being driven by test scores or anything? No, no, they're actually, so they, they uh, asked, they surveyed them beforehand. Mm -hmm. Then they go back at the end of the year and then they actually look at, you know, what they um, said about what them. They said about them. Um, and in some cases, and it's a good question because it doesn't go into the characteristics of each of the teacher evaluation programs. Mm -hmm. So it could very well be that some states have a higher percentage of their teacher evaluation program that's pinged to the uh, teacher, I mean, uh, the scores of the kids. Okay. But it actually doesn't go in and say, okay, how much of this is attributed to, you know, the, the teacher um, scores, which is a great question. Um, but anyway, the interviews actually revealed a number of reasons for this potential disconnect between how many they think are going to be scored low and how many actually do. And it gets into a lot of sort of human behavior things like they felt it was unfair to rate them below proficient if they couldn't provide them with support. It took a lot of time to rate them, uh, you know, low because they have to document poor performance which is what we hear a lot. You know, it's a big headache. Um, they didn't want to discourage teachers who they felt had potential. So they didn't want to squelch their potential too early. They thought the replacement might be worse. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, and then it was just, I mean, some of them were just really honest. It's just really hard and it's uncomfortable to tell a teacher that she's not performing well. And then even a few teachers, I mean, a few evaluators said, you know, they had racial worries so that in, in some cases it was a disproportionate number of non-white teachers who would receive that low rating mm -hmm. and they were worried that would become a racial question. <laughs> 
So mm, not touching that lot. one. <laughs> right. um, so I think in the end, and one of the things that Matthew says, and it makes a lot of sense, is that, you know what, these are not solutions that can be solved through some technocratic solution, like we tried to kind of do with teacher evaluations already. We're going to say, oh, X percent, for instance, has got to go toward student achievement. And we know how that went, uh, went over. So these are more things relative to norms and practices and human behaviors um, that were uncovered in the case study. And I think it makes it, it sheds some real light on why these things just didn't go like we thought they were going to go when we, um, you know, sort of mandated this type of reform in our most recent federal policy. Awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Nothing more than that? <laughs> well, I, I guess I have one more question, which yeah. is, and I'll ask the Mike Petrilli question. So I've, I've heard Mike make the case that, you know, if it's impossible to fire a teacher, then why rate a teacher low, uh, low, you know, give a teacher a low rating in the first place? Did any of that come through? Or is it really just that people are generally conflict averse, regardless of? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I don't think I mean, they didn't dig into that. Um, but I think that that could be it, right? Like, I don't know, I can't imagine why that I mean, it doesn't seem like it came up in a case study interview. But I think it was, you know, maybe, I don't know, I don't think it was 100 uh, principals uh, in the in the district did the survey and even fewer were interviewed. So it's hard to say, you know, that this is representative of a larger problem, but I can speak my N of one. Um, and I know you spent some time in schools too. Um, and I think that that is a lot of risk averse behavior. Um, and it's just like any other job. Like when you have to tell someone they're not doing well and you know it's uncomfortable and you know it's going to be a big headache to fire them um, and you're not sure what you're going to get. You know, that was a real, I thought that was really telling when principals said, well, you know, unlike in the private sector, right, where you can, you know, if you need to spend three months finding the right person, you can do that. Um, in a real school, like that classroom is waning away with no talent while you're trying to find your rock star teacher. Right. So I think it's just a different set of, um, of circumstances. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week's Gadfly show. Till next week. I'm Joel Rose. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.